We're looking at Psalm 11. Psalm 11. Uh, So you can turn there in your Bibles or your phones, or if you're using the, the Bibles here, page 452. Psalm 11. All right, let's, let's read God's word, Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today with open hands. We ask that you would give us your word. Help us, Lord, to listen, and may your word penetrate into our hearts. May we understand, and may we be moved, Lord, encouraged by your truth, and confronted where we are lacking, turning to you as our refuge. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So towards the end of the second of the Lord of the Rings movies, there is a moment where hopelessness is confronted by hope. Now, if you're one of those poor souls who has not seen the Lord of the Rings, no worries, I will describe it to you. King Theoden and his friend Aragorn are in a fortress called Helm's Deep. And they have been fighting against a lot of very bad guys all night long. They are about to lose. Uh, These these bad guys are breaking down the last door to the last room. And you see King Theoden just deflate and he gives up. And the actor does a brilliant job on this. He's got these empty eyes and he says with a a dull, sort of hollow voice. What can men do against such reckless hate? And it's in that moment that Aragorn, his friend, looks and he sees the sun beginning to rise and he remembers the words of the wizard, Gandalf, that he would return with reinforcements at dawn on the fifth day. And so he says to Theoden, Ride out with me. And the 
music swells, the battle horn blows, and you get those chills down your back. But this exchange raises the question, how do you respond to the the dull look and the hollow words of hopelessness? The Psalms often engage this question. Sometimes the psalmist himself really struggles to have hope. But here in Psalm 11, David confronts hopelessness. Uh, He says in verse 1, How can you say these things to my soul? What truths lead him to confront hopelessness so confidently? That's what we want to look at this morning. We need to begin by understanding the words of David's hopeless friends. So that will be my first point, hopeless friends. And we know we're supposed to hear these words because David includes them as direct speech, right? If you notice the the last line of verse 1 through the end of verse 3 is a quotation, Right? He's repeating these words from uh, his friends or his advisors or, or whoever these guys. Maybe, maybe this is even a conversation in his own head, but we'll just call them his friends. And, and this makes it feel like to us that these words are being said to us. Right? It's a literary technique that draws us into the experience of the writer. He wants you to face this advice yourself. Imagine yourself in a difficult moment hearing these words. This is the advice you receive. Run. Flee to your mountain, whatever place of safety you can scrounge up in this world. For ancient Israel, it was the mountains. For you, maybe it's your savings account or, you know, your work or that comfy corner in your house with a book or your phone where you can ignore the bickering voices of your family. Why? Verse 2, for behold. Now, behold just means look. Look at the trouble that surrounds you. You're in a mess. In David's case, there were people who actually wanted to murder him, unless this is meant figuratively, but there were plenty of times when people wanted to murder David. We know that from our series, and probably many more times that we don't know about. We can imagine David sitting with his army buddies after Saul has tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, and them saying, What are you doing here, man? Flee. Run. And that actually leads us to an important conclusion, right? David is not necessarily critiquing the advice to flee itself. There are many times in David's life when he flees, and it's portrayed as the right decision. What is he critiquing? He's critiquing their attitude, right? Their hopelessness, their pessimism, which is clearest to us in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, The foundations are (laughs) what holds everything together. Uh, So, you know, broadly in the world, you might think of things like morality, 
justice, the existence of truth, uh, facts, uh, the, the pillars of society. If they fall, what can we do? In our country, right, marriage and gender redefined, uh, religious liberties slipping away, it seems, civility, honesty, hard work, harder to find, poverty, tribalism, racism, abortion, drug addiction, materialism, still destroying people. These things make us feel hopeless. More narrowly, we could talk about the the foundations of of your life, the things that you view as the foundations, maybe your identity, what you love and hate, your, your skills perhaps, your family values. Uh, the trust and understanding that exists between you and those you love. Maybe your memories or your health. When these things are destroyed, do you cry out, what can the righteous do? The answer David received from his friends that he wants you to grapple with here is, you can do nothing. It's hopeless. Flee if you can. But there's no hope left for that old life of yours. Verse 3, that's a rhetorical question, right? They're not asking you for an answer. They're not asking David for an answer. They're telling him there is no answer. It's just like King Theoden in our introduction asking, what can men do? This is a hollow, dull question that expects no response. Have you received this kind of advice before? Or maybe you've said these very things to yourself in your own head. Brethren, some of the worst decisions are made when the blue glasses of hopelessness are tinting our judgment. And the reason for this is that for the Christian, hopelessness is always a lie. Always. Uh, Fleeing might be the right decision for David here, but not because things are hopeless. There is always a reason for Christians to be confident. That is why all the persecuted Christians around the world will always be stronger than their persecutors. That's why all the Christians struggling with cancer and disease in our midst will always be stronger than their sickness. They have a foundation that cannot be destroyed. The great enemy of disorder in this world is the Christian whose refuge, like David's, is in the Lord. So that neither the intimidation of evil powers nor the destruction of their body can control them. I know we will still struggle with hopelessness sometimes. And David, right, he's not, he's not always as confident about this as he is here in this psalm. But remember this. Hopelessness is not true. It is not a reality that you can build anything good upon. It is the shadow of death upon this world that the Christian who is eternal need not fear. 
Now, David does have an answer for his friend's rhetorical question. So it's time to look at our second point, the refuge of the Christian. Uh, We'll call this point true refuge, true refuge. If you've been able to come to our uh, adult Sunday school class in the Psalms, one of the the things that we learned pretty early on is that Psalms often have their main point in the middle. Not always, but often the main point shows up in the middle. I think we called it the heart of the psalm this morning in Sunday school class, right? The heart of the psalm. Uh, You and I, we were all trained well from an early age to put the, the important part in the conclusion at the end, right? You got your introduction, you got your supporting points, and you got your conclusion. That's how we write, that's how we speak. At least that's how we try to speak. Uh, So, Uriah, if you can pull up that slide for me. Yes, thank you. All right, so we've got, this is an outline of the text, briefly, uh, just the beginnings of each verse. And you can see pretty clearly here, we've got seven verses, so easily verse four is the center, the heart of the psalm. Um, And this structure is not just some sort of like cool, uh, nerdy thing, you know, uh, oh, look, it makes an arrow. Cool, man. It's, <laughs> this structure is saying something, okay? I, I, I've got it up here for a reason. And the reason is that it, it's saying, look, in order to confront hopelessness, you need these truths at the center of your vision. It's not like the rest of the psalm isn't important, obviously, but here's what you need to keep in front of you. This is where you need to focus your eyes. That's what the structure of the psalm tells us here. So we're going to look at verse 4 now. And, you know, at first glance, maybe this verse seems to you kind of uh, distant and and sort of a cold answer for the problems of verses 2 and 3. Life is falling apart for David. And God's location is supposed to encourage him. But we've got to make sure we don't glaze over this verse. So let's take it piece by piece. The Lord is in his holy temple. What what are temples all about? What's their goal, right? They're about God's presence in the midst of his people. Temples are, are a symbol of God's imminence, his willingness to come down and be with his one of the, uh, the greatest desires of David's life, you may recall, was to build a temple for the Lord in the midst of Israel. He's not allowed to do it. Um, but that doesn't stop him from centralizing the worship of Israel, organizing their services, and uh, stockpiling resources for his son so that his son can build this temple. All to impress on the people of Israel that God is not distant, but in their midst. And the meaning of this phrase is even more powerful for you and I in the New Testament age because we are now the Lord's holy temple. God truly dwells in our midst. This is not a distant image at all. This is as personal and as present as you can get. David could hardly have guessed how the meaning of this text would be enriched as God's plan unfolded. Ephesians 2.21, God is building you 
together with all the members of God's household into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is not far away from your moments of crisis. He does not keep a respectable distance from your bad days. He he does not let you hide behind the couch and cry without him. Psalm 139, he lays his hand upon you. This is the first part of David's picture of true refuge that you need to see. Secondly, we read in verse 4, the Lord's throne is in heaven. Now, this is an image of distance, right? It's an image of power and transcendence. God's throne is a place of rule, a place of judgment. And, And God does not place his throne in one of the kingdoms of the earth, notice. Even at a time when God had a special relationship with the nation of Israel, David knew that did not limit his reign in any fashion. Every knee will bow, now or later. And the hopeless need a God like this, right? They need a God who is both intimate and powerful. Uh, imminent and transcendent, right? A God of relationship and a God of protection. That is the God that David knows, that he is confident in. And thirdly, this God sees. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Now, you might say to yourself, well, yes, uh, I see. That's what they're for. But do our eyes really see? Think of a child who looks at the world with no knowledge of the electricity that is flowing through lights and houses and and TV screens, no knowledge of the germs, the microorganisms that are floating around them, no knowledge of magnetic fields and cell phone signals and sound waves and molecules and atoms and uh, photosynthesis and cellular respiration, all the things we don't even know about. That's the way we see times a million in comparison to God. We have the eyes of infants, but his eyes see all. They discern all people as only the creator who made things and who knows the end from the beginning of all things could possibly see. This is one of those truths that when we can begin to grasp it, it changes the way that we grapple with hard questions like, why doesn't God just heal this person I love? Why doesn't God just take me out of these difficult circumstances? Why doesn't God give me the spouse I prayed for? Why why doesn't God show me what to do? They're still hard questions, absolutely. But when we understand that we see like a baby compared to God, well, we're not really in a position to blame or judge him anymore, are we? If we know his intimacy and his power, 
we're actually in a place where we can grow to trust him a lot more than we ever did before. To be confident like David is here. Now, although we can't see God, he does tell us many things in his word. And so in verses 5 to 7, we learn about the ultimate destination of the righteous and the wicked. And so my third point will be final destination, final destination. The wicked receive judgment, and it's not pretty. But this is no surprise. We've seen this before. We saw it in Psalm 1. We saw it in Psalm 2. Uh, and it's one of the clearest themes that the Bible teaches, although certainly not the most popular. But what may surprise you here is this phrase, the Lord tests the righteous. Uh, notice especially, this is placed in contrast to his hatred for the wicked. The Lord tests the righteous, but hates the wicked. You, you would almost expect him to say something more like the Lord loves the righteous but hates the wicked. But instead, David says he tests. How is testing a good thing to be contrasted with hatred? How in the world does a test help us to confront hopelessness? Well, you see, this is not like the tests that you took in school. It's not a test that you pass or fail or that brings acceptance or rejection. Notice, these people are already called the righteous. They're already accepted. On the other hand, being called righteous doesn't mean that they're perfect because otherwise there would be no need for testing. What this test actually is is a commitment to sanctify his people. This is the testing that a metallurgist does to refine and burn out the impurities in a metal. Some of you may know we have a metallurgist in our midst. I won't say his name. I don't want him to be embarrassed, but he's a chemist. And one of the things he does is he tests metals for impurities. And sometimes he has to send a batch back to the furnace for more refining. But he doesn't do that because he's got something personal against that particular batch of metal, right? But so that the metal would be made stronger, so that it might fulfill its true purpose. Now, we need to recognize the obvious. This process can be painful. Job uh, refers to his suffering as this kind of test, a test that refines him into gold. Abraham is tested like this when he is called to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. In Zechariah 13.9, God speaks of a time when his shepherd, his chief shepherd, will be struck down and all his people will be refined, will be tested in a fire. As David writes this psalm, he and his hopeless friends appear to be in a refining fire like this. And yet he still recognizes this test as good. Because it means that what is happening to him is doing something. It is a sign that God is working on him so that ultimately he will see the face of God as he proclaims in verse 7 at the end of the psalm. That is the final destination of God's people. When they have stood the test, 
they will receive the crown of life and behold the face of their Lord. But if that test seems too hard for you to face today, do not forget to start where David starts. In the Lord, I take refuge, he says. David knew that he would never be able to face this test alone, and you can't either. You need a refuge that has already stood the test to go before you. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you need somebody else in the fire with you. And Jesus is that refuge. He is the true foundation of the righteous that cannot be destroyed. He's the stone that Isaiah 28, 16 prophesied would be a tested and precious cornerstone. The foundation of the Lord's holy temple. All who would look upon the face of the Lord must build their lives upon him. If you would confront hopelessness in your life, you need a vision of the Lord as your refuge. Present with you, reigning in heaven, and closing his eyes to nothing. And there is no better picture of that refuge than Jesus. In his life and his death, he showed us that God is intimate. In his resurrection and exaltation, he showed us that God is powerful. He has lived your dark nights and your cloudy mornings. He sees you. He knows you by name. And he welcomes you to take refuge in his arms. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you take us out into hopeless days sometimes. And the test feels like more than we could possibly bear. How can we gain the confidence of David here in Psalm 11? It's only when we make you our refuge, when we claim Jesus as our home, as the cornerstone of our lives, the foundation that cannot be destroyed, that gives us power to confront hopelessness. Give us a vision of our refuge, O Lord, your closeness and your distance, your desire for relationship and your power and the eyes that miss nothing and understand everything. If we admit that to be true, we are in a position of trust. So, O oh Lord, leave us not alone, but be our refuge. Give us hope to confront hopelessness. Test us and make us pure that we might behold your face. 